You're listening to the Citrus Church Podcast. Now, here's the message. Yeah, so as we get started this morning, as we get started this morning, I want to welcome again those who are joining with us online. We're thankful that you're here with us. Thankful that those who are gathered with us in person are here too. And to our team who led us in worship this morning, um, thank you for in, uh, allowing us to enter God's presence with you. This morning, we're coming to the last in the series that we've been looking at with this idea of downtime. And this sermon series was really on my heart because as we go through summer, what I've learned and what I know, and I think what you know to be true too, is that summer just gives us a different schedule. It's a different time of the year, and whether we're a part of the school calendar or not, summer is a time when things can be different, when things change and when there's different patterns and different routines. And what I've learned over the years is that anytime there's a schedule change or a pattern change or a change in the usual thing, it's an opportunity, A, for me to reconnect with God, but also it's a time for me to begin to dig deeper because as those seasons change, God often calls us into new things or calls us into being in new ways. So what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks are the different ways that downtime can help us draw closer to God. And what we've looked at in Scripture are the examples of Jesus who often in his ministry, kind of counter to what people would have expected or liked him to do, found times to go away from the crowds, to go away from the busyness, as we might say today, to turn down the volume so that he could turn up the volume on hearing from God. And Jesus would do this often by going to caves, by going to quiet spaces, by getting up early or by staying up late. And in doing those things, he created and cultivated those places where he could best hear from God and best understand what was coming next for him. So today, we're going to look in particular, we're going to, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We've looked at Jesus primarily and exclusively. And today, I want to look at an example of someone else. I want to look at the example of the Apostle Paul who obviously picked up on this idea from Jesus, but carries it out in a unique way that I think will connect with us. One of the things that I've, I've noticed, and perhaps you've noticed this too, well, let me ask you this question. When you meet someone new, or you're introducing yourself, you know, you say, hey, I'm so-and-so, and they say, I'm so-and-so too. And what is one of the first questions that you ask? Thank you. <laughs> that was my wife. That wasn't a plant. I didn't... <laughs> I didn't tell her the answer ahead of time. That's right. One of the first questions that you ask is like, what do you do? When we're kind of trying to figure out what people, who they are, we, we ask them, what do you do? And I think that's a fun question because we're interested in, in how they spend 40 plus hours of their week. You know, do they go to an office? Are they from home? Do they work a nine to five job? Are they a stay-at-home parent? What does it look like for them? What do they do? And so much of who we are is defined by what we do. So that question kind of makes sense. I wonder how that question unfolded in the last year. I kind of learned to, to not ask that question as much. In fact, one of the questions I've kind of led with this past year is, how are you? Like, like no, really. <laughs> like, how are you? Because things are a mess, right? But that idea of what do you do is significant because our work is significant. But in the last year, there was a point where uh, a couple months into the pandemic, we kind of did an informal survey of our church community and congregation, and I found that somewhere between 45 to 50 percent of us, our congregation here and online, were furloughed or unemployed. And that was something that really set me back to think, this is really a local issue. So half were furloughed, half were unemployed. I believe statistically at this point, as I've kind of talked to folks, that 
that everyone who was furloughed has been called back and or has found a new role or a new job or something different. So we've experienced a dramatic shift and a dramatic change and a dramatic upheaval in that. And so when the question comes, what do you do? My hunch is that we probably pause a little more now than we used to with that. So much of who we are is defined by what we do. I found this statistic from the Pew Research Center. And they said in the last year, roughly 9.6 million, million U.S. workers lost their jobs during the COVID-19 downturn. 9.6 million. So what I see in this is for us as followers of Jesus, as those who are trying to shape our life after the model of Jesus, we need some different ways, perhaps some bigger ways to understand who we are and what God has for us than just simply the usual metric we use as, what do you do? Because that can change. Now, this idea is not new for us. It's adapted and flowed through history, and so perhaps you use different words for it. What we're talking about this morning is not so much a job, but a calling, as we might call it today. Maybe the, purpose, maybe the word you use is a purpose or a vocation. Vocation, calling, purpose— any of these are words that we can kind of substitute within one another to get a glimpse of what God has for us. So it's clear to me that all of us have navigated a big change over the last year. And I believe that our hope with summer was to figure out how do we take all that we've experienced, how do we begin to learn from that, adapt to that, and how might this next year be different? I know that not all of us are a part of the school system, but in some ways that, that August line there becomes a fresh start for us. So how do we navigate this big change, and how do we gather a perspective of what God wants to do that's bigger than our job? So this morning, I'm thinking particularly about those who had a planned or unplanned job change, maybe those who are retiring, maybe those who have a change in their role from a parent to an empty nester. Maybe your kids are doing different things this year than they were, and it's changing your schedule. But I'm also thinking about the big changes people make when they move. Maybe it's into a different apartment or a different home, or you're shifting where you lay your head at night. One of the other unique things about our church this year is we have a whole bunch of students who are going from elementary into middle, and some who are going from middle into high school. And that shift in itself is monumental. If you're not sure, think back to your change and how that went going from elementary to middle and then middle to high school. What I want to do is lay a foundation so we understand that there are a lot of big changes that are going on in life. And sometimes we, we tend to just move through those, but I want us to move through those with intention, asking the question, how can we navigate this big change faithfully with God? And so the Apostle Paul experienced a gigantic change in his own life that was prompted by God. And as we look at the story this morning that Heather read for us, it'll give us a navigational guide on how we might do that. So this morning, I want to look at the Apostle Paul, but I want to look in particular before his name was Paul. He was originally called Saul, and Saul learned in the scripture that we read this morning that Saul was set apart for a purpose. And in response to that set-apartness, he goes to a set-apart place in order to better understand what God was doing. So let me share a little bit about who Saul was, just to refresh us or to introduce him as a character to us, someone that I believe in some ways we can relate to. 
Saul, from early on, grew up in a very strict Jewish home and Jewish society. And so what that meant for him was that from very early on, he was already on the track to become a religious leader. From very early on, he learned the law in a very focused educational type environment. He was on the track to become a rabbi when the time came. And so in the background of all that we've read so far, Paul has a very strict upbringing in terms of what it means to be a faithful Jew, what it means to be a follower of the law, the, what we call the Old Testament, but of course wasn't old at that point. And so as he begins to grow up, he goes from his home in Tarshish to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the premier rabbis in that time, and my hunch was that if you were on like Gamaliel's squad, you knew some good things were going to be happening for you. He was on track to become a rabbi of significance, whose name would have continued in the history of Israel for generations to come. It's interesting because as he is making this rise, he's really rising at the same time that Jesus would have been operating in Jerusalem. So oftentimes when we read Scripture, we read the letters, uh, we read the Gospels of Jesus, and we read the letters of Paul. Of course, Saul would become Paul. And I often think of them as separate people. So it's helpful to remember that while Jesus was ministering in Jerusalem, Saul was very much aware of who this person was. And of course, if they're both in Jerusalem at the same time, it's just not that big of a city. There had to be overlap. All the commotion that Jesus was causing, all the frustration he was causing the religious leaders, like Saul's leaders and like Saul himself. And so, of course, by AD 30, Saul has really become known as a defender of Judaism, a defender of Judaism. And what their frustration has become at this point is that this uh, Jewish Christian community that is following in the way of Jesus even after his death and resurrection is beginning to really challenge a lot of the customs and the norms and is really insisting that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that the scriptures spoke about. And this is enraging a lot of the people who are in power and a lot of the people who are in leadership and a lot of these rabbis because they're having to battle against this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And there's a significant moment where the frustration and the anger mounts so much that one of Jesus' followers, a man named Stephen, is brought before the courts and ends up being taken out to be stoned. One of the things that could be prescribed for you if you spoke heresy or spoke out against God. And so they bring Stephen out to stone him. And it's helpful to remember where Paul comes from when his name was still Saul. So this is what the scriptures in Acts 8, chapter 1 say about him at that point. Saul was in full agreement with Stephen's murder. Hold up. This guy wrote more than the New Testament, right? This guy wrote all the letters and all those things. This is important to remember. Saul was in full agreement with Stephen's murder. At that time, the church in Jerusalem began to be subjected to vicious harassment. Everyone except the apostles was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And so what's happening is the disciples are scared because of this persecution. And so they're, they're scattering and they're leaving and they're getting out of town. And the disciples, the apostles, the 12 who were with Jesus, are staying in Jerusalem to try to keep these things together and to encourage each other. 
And it's helpful for us to understand this because what we see here is that Saul isn't just kind of a bystander or someone who's off the side or someone who's not really a part of what's going on. He was in full agreement. And he wasn't in full agreement because he was a bad person. He was in full agreement because it was the belief that the Scriptures and their understanding of who God was called them to enact this kind of persecution on these uh, people who are committing heresy. And so Saul truly believed that he was doing the right thing for God, that his attacking of others was the right thing. And in fact, what happens after this point is that Saul is commissioned by the high priest to travel north from Jerusalem into the area of Damascus with this mission to arrest followers of the way. His mission was to arrest followers of the way. And everything that we see about this about Saul is that he was excited and passionate and felt that this was his calling, his vocation, his purpose, was to defend Judaism, to defend the honor of God from those who would say that God is something else. I'm trying to paint a picture here of Saul where we can begin to look at him and say, maybe as we've done in the past, he's the enemy, we're nothing like that. I'm trying to paint a picture that says, okay, I don't like it, but I see where he's coming from, and I see where maybe at times, maybe I've walked in those shoes too. Steve, at this point, Paul is a religious fanatic, and he's trying to defend God's honor. And I think it's important for us to at least pause in this moment and to take notes of the ways in which this idea is still a part of the church today. This idea that we have to defend the honor of God against anyone who would try to come against it. And the way in which that uh, catalyzes the church to fight amongst ourselves about who's right and who's wrong. The way that we fight against the world and the way that we see our role as followers of Jesus as persecuting others. We don't subscribe to our way or our idea. And so it's worth us noting that Saul, thinking he was doing all the things that God wanted him to do, was actually very much in the wrong path. And so on the way to Damascus to arrest those of the way, I love the wordplay there, the idea that the one who he encounters is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus describes himself in the Gospels as the way, the truth, and the life. The followers of Jesus had become known as those of the way. And Saul is on his way to arrest them, and he meets with Jesus. Now, it's worth the whole sermon at, this, at a different time to talk about Saul's conversion or his call and how that change shifts. But the passage we read from Galatians this morning gives us a great overview of that passage and that shift of where he went from one life, one name, to a different name and a different life. And so whereas before he was Saul, now he becomes Paul, a defender of Judaism, and now he becomes the person who in his writings really invites us in to know God. And so he experiences this conversion, and he comes to understand that God has a different way for him and for his life. And at the same time, he receives a calling, what we might call a vocation or a purpose. And we heard that in verse 16. And he says that his particular calling is to preach about Jesus to the Gentiles. So there's two things happening here, and this is important for us. One, he has a conversion experience where he moves from essentially uh, an enemy of God, making himself an enemy of God, to a friend of God. 
And he also, at the second part, has a calling. And his specific calling was to preach the good news to the Gentiles. Now, the differences between those two will come back to us in just a minute. But what I like about this passage is what he decides to do next. Now, he had a couple of options before him. He just had this amazing encounter with the risen God as he was traveling to arrest the followers of the risen God. And he's got a couple of options, and he laid them out in the Scripture. He said, I didn't consult with humans. After an experience like that, we might want to talk to somebody. We might want to talk to some friends or some family and be like, look, here's what just happened. It's a little crazy. I'm trying to make sense of all this. I thought I was doing what God wanted to do. I was not. But he says, I didn't do that. It also says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, as we remember, was really the center of it. The apostles were still there, and that was where the Jerusalem council of the followers of Jesus would sit. And so, in a sense, if he went back there, he could consult with them and begin to get a sense of what in the world did I just experience. But he didn't do that either. The scripture says, but I went away to Arabia. And what I see here. I don't know if he's aware of it or not at that point, but what he's doing is he's embracing the idea of downtime that Jesus found was so crucial to who he was and what he was called to do. Rather than going and talking to others, which is a good thing to do, rather than going and talking to some official folks, which is always a good thing to do, he decides that he needs some downtime, and he needs to pull away from everything else, Jerusalem, Damascus, all those places, and find a quiet place. So he goes into the area of Arabia to process his big change, his call and conversion. Now, that's not too far of a journey. Uh, Arabia then is what we would call modern-day Jordan. It was a province of the Roman Empire. So it's not like he went away and sat in a desert. It was a populated area. It was a populated city. But I got the impression that he needed some time away to figure out what to do next. And he ends up staying there for three years. I think it's worth noting at this point that oftentimes when we go through a big change, it's not always just one part of our life. That if the big change is physical, there's probably a geographic component to and a spiritual component. If there's something changing inside us spiritually, it might be affecting our geography and our physical. What I want to look at here is how for Paul, his call and conversion affected all areas of his life and encourage us to allow ourselves to to recognize the way that physically, geographically, emotionally, that all these things can begin to affect us. And so Arabia becomes his place for downtime. The reason that he goes there is to get to know this Jesus, whom he persecuted, but who showed up to him on the road and offered him grace in a new vocation, in a new way to see the world and the people in it. So to use Saul's language, he goes to a set-apart place to understand who this was in the first place that set him apart. And he could have consulted with others. He could have gone to Jerusalem, but he needed to go to the source. And to his surprise, he finds out that God had set him apart since his very birth. And when we use words like vocation or calling and purpose, this is what we're talking about. This idea that God has set us apart since our birth with something that we are called to do. And so much of us, so many of us, myself included, spend so much trying trying to figure out what that is or how that calling is changing or ebbing or flowing. And so it's worth us taking time to see how Paul did that because what Paul's experience can give to us 
is the model for us as Christians. All of this journey happened on a Damascus Road. Have you ever heard people use that term before, Damascus Road experience? This is the idea here that Paul, on the road called Damascus, had this encounter that radically changed everything about who he was and his vocation. And for us, whether the road is called Damascus or probably not, whether it looks like Paul's or not, it's often through these Damascus roads that we too change courses and begin to do something different. Later on in his life, when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippian church, he said, brothers and sisters, become imitators of me and watch those who live this way. You can use as models. I've always thought that language was kind of interesting that that Paul would say, imitate me, because so much of his life was about imitating Christ. And when I think about this, Paul, I believe, is not saying that we should imitate his call, that we should say that in the same way that he was, that we have the same exact calling. No, I believe what Paul wants is for us to follow in the example, because each one of us will have a unique calling, a unique purpose, a unique group of people that we are called to minister to or to reach. Paul's was the Gentiles. And this makes sense because God has created each one of us uniquely. And God has a calling and a vocation for each one of our lives uniquely. And oftentimes the only way to begin to get a sense of what that is or how it's changing or what it looks like next is when we set apart downtime in Arabias of our lives, which is intentional time to get to know the one who called us, to get to know Jesus. I think many of us have stressed over what that calling might be and, and how am I calling, and how am I supposed to figure out what that is? I want to take us into what callings look like and hopefully give us what I think is an answer this morning to what our calling is and some direction on how to go next. The idea of vocation comes from the Latin word vocatio, which means to call. Not much of a surprise, but it really connects that. What this word is always intended to do, and maybe where we've gotten it wrong over the years, is that a vocation was always intended to be a divine, not a human choice. What I mean by that is sometimes what we think is that a vocation is what we choose to do. My vocation is what I've chosen to do as a job. It's what I've chosen maybe as a major. It's what I've chosen as a sport. And sometimes we get this just a little bit off by thinking that a vocation is something that we choose. It's helpful to remember that, and perhaps in in work, that we choose a career or a job or a thing that we're good at, but a vocation is something that is given to us. We receive it from God. Look again at the words that Paul used in verse 12. Speaking of his calling, his vocation, he says, I didn't receive it or learn of it from a human. It came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a really important piece for us because what it tells us is that it's not something that we have to go out and find. It's something that is given to us and we receive it from God. Our Paul Stevens uh, writes it this way, that our divinely given purpose, embracing all dimensions of our human existence and the special dimensions of service that Christians undertake in the church in the world. There's a lot there, so I kind of simplified this down to this. My definition of vocation is hearing and living God's call for you. 
hearing and living out God's call for you. And this is exactly what Paul did on the road that day, was he, he heard from the Lord, and he heard of his call to share the good news with the Gentiles, and he begins to live that out. And so our vocation, your vocation, your purpose is to hear and live God's call for you. And you may be thinking at this point, like, I don't know if my job has like a framework for like living out God's call in the day today. We're going to come to that. Because what I'm hoping to do is to cast a vision from Scripture that vocations are really the capstone of everything else that comes below. And so the questions that we ask, like, what do you do, really should fall underneath this idea of vocation. A vocation is bigger than what we do, but I think it's also more than who we are. A vocation is really and truly about God. A lot of times we, we get things kind of out of order by making it about ourselves and what we're good at or what we can do, when really this is about who God is first that shapes who we are. And I really have understood this past year why we need a clear sense of vocation that is separate. Because that way when we go through job or career changes, we can understand how those things fit into the bigger puzzle. I mean, there's been times before, and perhaps you, for you too, and maybe you can think of people you know, where everything that they are is wrapped up in what they did. And this is a problem too. I can speak from what I do, which is as a pastor. This is a problem for pastors who retire and all of a sudden have no idea what to do anymore because who they were was a pastor. And if they can't do that anymore, who in the world are they? I wonder if you've known people in your life too where whether the job was religious or not, so much of everything of who they were was wrapped up in that. And so if they are let go or if they have to step down or if they have to retire for one reason or another, they just don't know who they are anymore. I think part of that is the way that God works in our life too, though. Part of that is God showing us, I still have a calling for you that's even bigger than all those things. It's, it's really an invitation. So your vocation is going to be more than a paycheck. It's going to be more than nine to five. And this really matters to us also because it tells us that God has a call for someone who's employed and for someone who's unemployed, for someone who clocks in and for someone for whom a clock doesn't really even matter. That God has a calling for the person who goes to work, but also for the person who stays home. That God has a calling for an elementary, a middle, a high school student. That every single person has a call. And it's not as much about what we do, it's about who God is. One of my favorite books on this that I read several years back and came back to this week was a book uh, by someone named Oz Guinness. And yes, that's that Guinness. Uh, Oz Guinness is part of the Guinness family. Uh, that might make someone more excited to read it. It doesn't have anything in there about that. There's not like some homebrew. Um, but Oz Guinness has written a book called The Call, Finding and Fulfilling the central purpose for your life. And there's this quote in it that says, first, he says, first we're called to someone, God, not to something or to somewhere. First we are called to someone, not to something or to somewhere. And a lot of times as followers of Jesus, we think we get these out of order. And we think I'm called to someone, I'm called to something, or I'm called to go somewhere. A lot of times what we do is we take the primary call, which is to someone, to God, 
and we make that secondary, and we make the secondary call our primary thing. And that's where things begin to get out of order, is that when the something or the somewhere changes, we're, we're stuck thinking like, I don't even know what to do with myself, Lord. So I want to encourage us this morning to keep the primary call, which is that first we're called to someone as the primary, and that will allow the secondary pieces to fall into place, to ebb and to flow and to change with what changes around us. Paul's primary and first call was to Jesus. His secondary call was to the Gentiles. Now, if he had gotten those flipped around, he would have put a lot of energy into reaching the Gentiles, and he may have never made it to Arabia. And I wonder how that might have changed his ministry. He would have always been trying to do something for God, always trying to, to save those poor Gentiles. But he understood first that he needed to go to Arabia, and he had to get to know the someone who was calling him before he could figure out anything else. So that call to reach the Gentiles went into his back pocket, and he got to know the someone first. I think that this is helpful to us in one way because you can know today with confidence and assurance of the primary call of God in your life. And quite simply, it's that we are called first to someone. The call, the purpose, our vocation in life is that we are called to know God, to know Jesus. And, and that's not just like a one-time thing, like I come to know Jesus and I give God my heart or I, I'm saved. It's kind of a lifelong process, that this is a lifelong journey of getting to know God. And, and our calling can be expressed in our work and in our life. The reason that I think this is helpful is because it really just kind of takes away the whole idea of like, I don't know what my vocation is, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's given to us. We're called to someone. But the reason this is also hard is because we're not really given a blueprint. There are many times that I wish that God would just give me or us or you the plan for what comes next, for who we're called to be. Lord, just, just lay it out for me, and I will gladly follow steps A, B, C, D, and E. Right? But Paul never got a blueprint. Go to the Gentiles. I mean, think about that. There were really kind of two groups of people from a Jewish mindset. There were um, the Hebrews, God's people, and then there were the Gentiles, which is everyone else. And, and Paul's call is to go to them. Like, which ones? Those ones, those ones, those ones, these ones. Like, that's the entire rest of the known world. Paul is not given a blueprint. What I have found is that God's secondary call of what we're called to do or how we're called to serve or how that looks in our work is a lot more dynamic than say. When I say dynamic, what I mean is that it changes over time and it adapts. It unfolds as we go. And a lot of times, that's really hard to figure out. Paul was called to the Gentiles, and he began that journey. And if you continue on through his letters, what you find is that he had a really hard time doing that, and things didn't always go well. And he would go places, and he would get kicked out. In fact, he writes that during the time of following what God called him to do, that he was often in prison. He was shipwrecked three times. At one point, he floated in the ocean for a day. Not like we go and float in the ocean, but he was floating in the ocean because he was shipwrecked and floating in the ocean. That he often faced death, that he was beaten, that he got stoned, that he was sought after by his own people, by people who liked him, by people who didn't like him. 
that he was sought after by Jewish leaders, by political leaders, that he was accused falsely by fellow Christians, and that he had many days where he was sleepless and that he was hungry. I want to remind us that when we hear a call from God and when God calls us to something or to somewhere, it doesn't mean that everything just flows perfectly. If Paul's story is an indication, it means that it's still hard. The journey of hearing and living God's call for our lives is a mixed bag of joy and challenges, of struggles and victory, of mountaintops and valleys. But holding on to the truth that we are first and foremost called to God, like Paul, serves as an anchor for us so that whatever the big change is that's going on around us that we are in, whether that's something that we've planned or something that's unplanned, whether it's a change in our role from becoming a parent or becoming an empty nester, whether it's a change in our geographical location or our home, whether it's a change in our school, middle, high school, etc., that first and foremost, we can place our anchor down in the reality that God calls us. So my hope is that, like Paul, we can begin to say, but God has set me apart from birth and called me through his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might dot, dot, dot. The way that Paul finished that sentence of going to serve the Gentiles was his unique secondary call. What is yours? What is mine? I don't have an easy answer for that this morning. Paul didn't have an easy answer either. What happened for him was that was when he went to Arabia to figure out how to live that out. That's what happens for us as we take downtime. When we stop, when we tune down the noise, when we find silence, when we find solitude, we can begin to hear the unique ways that at this juncture in our life, so that I might and fill in the blank. Our assurance will grow and will flourish, and our call will be heard and clarified when we set aside that set-apart time with God. And I think it's as straightforward as what we do this morning when we gather together as the community of faith. When we seek these moments where we can gather together and be present with one another and with God, and we can begin to discern what God is saying to us about what comes next. We can also do that. I want to encourage you to do this, to find those quiet moments of silence and solitude. Maybe you set up that time as a regular part of your day. Maybe you find yourself throughout the day and you say, it's quiet. I'm alone. This is a great time to connect with God on what God's call is for me at this time. So know with assurance that God has called you and that your primary purpose in life is to know God. And from there, everything else flows and begins to come together. Thanks for listening. Make sure to visit our website, citruschurch.org. If you found refreshments in this message, share it with a friend. And hey, God loves you.